It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Today is Monday, October 14th, 2019. On this day in 1998, 32-year-old serial bomber Eric Robert Rudolph was charged for the fatal 1996 Olympic Park bombing and for the 1997 bombings of an Atlanta health clinic and nightclub. The day the charges were filed, Rudolph was still at large, considered one of the FBI's most wanted fugitives. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Every day, we flip back the calendar to this date years ago and recount one event from true crime history. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and today we're covering Eric Robert Rudolph, the Olympic Park bomber. In 1996, he detonated a homemade pipe bomb in Centennial Olympic Park during the Atlanta Summer Olympics. 111 people were injured in the attack. A 44-year-old woman was killed, and a Turkish cameraman died of a heart attack while covering the event. Despite an intense FBI investigation, Eric Rudolph was not identified as a suspect until almost two years later, by which point he had committed three more acts of terror. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Before we unpack the ramifications of Rudolph's crimes, let's go back to the day he was formally charged on October 14, 1998, in the early afternoon. Richard Jewell sat hunched over the keyboard of his mother's home computer, eyes glued to the screen as one 8-bit flying saucer after another exploded in a blaze of red and orange pixelated fireworks. He'd booted up the game on a whim this afternoon while visiting and was surprised at how quickly the controls came back to him. He'd beaten it over a dozen times two years earlier in the aftermath of the 1996 Summer Olympics. It had been a rare source of escape then, when Richard and his mother were practically confined to her Atlanta apartment, unable to even step outside without being hounded by reporters or trailed by FBI vehicles. The telephone rang, its tone sharp and startlingly close. Richard winced as his virtual spacecraft crashed into the side of the screen. He glared at the phone on the desk, hating the anxiety that had erupted in his chest at the innocuous sound. But it had been months since any reporters had called the house, so after the fourth ring, he picked it up. Hey, champ, came the familiar Southern drawl. It was Watson Bryant, Richard's friend and attorney, and the man he had spent more time with than virtually anyone else over the past two years. I've been trying to get a hold of you for half an hour, 
Have you seen the news? You know I don't watch that crud, Richard snapped, not bothering to mask his irritation. What's going on? Just turn on the TV, said Bryant. You're going to want to see this yourself. Richard padded down the hall to the living room. He pried the remote from the cushions of the couch and powered on the TV. The screen burst to life, to shaky footage of people running and screaming through a public park, white smoke curling above their heads. Richard blinked, unfathomed. He'd seen this footage dozens of times before. This was how it had all started two years ago in the summer of 1996. Richard had just resigned from his position as a police officer at Piedmont College and moved home to take care of his mother while she underwent foot surgery. He took a job as a security guard for the AT&T tent at the Centennial Olympic Park, newly opened for the 1996 Atlanta Summer Olympics. One week into the games, on the evening of July 26th, Richard went into work with a severe stomach cramp and a barely manageable case of diarrhea. Around midnight, he emerged from the park's public bathrooms and spotted a green, military-style backpack under a bench. The park was still crowded, and it took a few minutes for Richard to ask all of the bystanders if the pack was theirs. When no one claimed it, alarm bells blared in Richard's head. He phoned his superior and, with the help of a colleague, cleared a 25-foot perimeter around the bench. He didn't know how much time they had. Then he dashed to the control tower, where the reporters and news technicians covering the games were stationed. I want y'all out now, he shouted at them. This is serious. The pack exploded a little over an hour later at about 1.25 in the morning. It ripped the bench to shreds and sprayed hundreds of seven-inch nails across the park. Despite the 25-foot safe zone, over a hundred people, including many of Richard Jewell's colleagues and friends, were rushed to the hospital. In the immediate aftermath of the bombing, Richard Jewell was heralded as a hero. His quick assessment of the situation and the speed with which he cleared the immediate area surrounding the pack had likely prevented countless deaths. There were TV appearances and book deals on the table. Richard contacted his friend Watson Bryant and asked if he would represent him as he navigated the quagmire of his newfound fame. Then, almost overnight, the narrative changed. Pressured for news about the advancement of the case, the FBI released a statement that Richard Jewell was being viewed as a suspect. They implied that he had planted the bomb himself so that he could find it and become a hero. Newspapers, television anchors, and late-night hosts leapt on the dramatic reversal. NBC's Tom Brokaw suggested on air that the FBI likely had enough to arrest and prosecute Jewell and were waiting to make sure the case was airtight. Others reported that Richard Jewell fit the FBI's profile of a lone bomber. They harped on the fact that at 33 years old, Richard lived at home with his mother. They commented on his weight, called him a weirdo, a wannabe cop, and a fat, failed sheriff's deputy. Jay Leno dubbed him the Una Doofus. 
the image on screen changed, rocking Richard Jewell back to the present. A woman addressed the camera from a podium emblazoned with the seal of the Department of Justice. She repeated a name for what must have been the third time, Eric Robert Rudolph. As of this morning, Rudolph had been formally charged with the Centennial Park bombing, as well as the 1997 bombings of a health clinic and a nightclub in Atlanta. He was still at large, last seen in the woods of Western North Carolina. Did you hear that, champ? came Watson Bryant's voice in Richard's ear. They charged him with Centennial Park. You know what that means. Richard shut his eyes, barely able to believe his next words. It's over. Coming up, we'll explore the Olympic Park bomber's crimes and learn about how he managed to elude justice for so long. Now back to the story. On October 14, 1998, Eric Robert Rudolph was charged with five counts of malicious use of an explosive and finally officially identified as the Olympic bomber. He had been 29 years old when he committed that first act of terror in 1996. On January 26th, he planted a military-style pack containing three homemade pipe bombs underneath a bench in Atlanta's crowded Centennial Olympic Park. 111 people were injured in the blast, most of them by the nails that Rudolph had placed in the bombs as shrapnel. A 44-year-old mother named Alice Hawthorne was killed when a nail pierced her skull. Mele Ozanyal, a Turkish cameraman, died of a heart attack while rushing to cover the explosion. In the aftermath of the bombing, while the press and FBI zeroed in on hero security guard Richard Jewell as the prime suspect, Eric Rudolph prepared for his next attack. On January 16, 1997, two bombs exploded at an abortion clinic in Sandy Springs, Georgia, injuring six. Two months later, on February 21st, he detonated pipe bombs at the Other Side Lounge, an LGBTQ nightclub in Northeast Atlanta. At least five people were injured. Then, on January 29, 1998, Rudolph detonated a bomb at the New Woman All Women Abortion Clinic in Birmingham, Alabama, killing 35-year-old security guard Robert Sanderson and seriously injuring a nurse. This time, Rudolph's pickup truck was spotted at the scene. Based on the similarity of the explosive devices used, the FBI began pursuing Rudolph as a suspect in all four bombings. Rudolph, however, had disappeared. The FBI believed that he was hiding in the wooded mountains of North Carolina, near the area where he had grown up. But after deploying helicopters and hundreds of field agents to search the area for months, they had found no sign of him. He was still a fugitive from justice on October 14, 1998, when he was formally charged for the three Georgia bombings. While the FBI struggled to locate the serial bomber, their instincts had not been wrong. Rudolph was camping out in the Snowbird and Tuskegee Mountains of North Carolina, just as they had suspected. 
He stayed there for five years, surviving on stolen vegetables and grains and discarded food pilfered from the dumpsters of nearby grocery stores. Some of his most dependable food targets were the McDonald's and the Save-A-Lot in the town of Andrews, which were virtually across the street from the temporary FBI field offices. While digging through the dumpsters, he entertained himself with the thought that he was eating the same food as the men who were conducting his manhunt. On May 31, 2003, Eric Rudolph was arrested while stealing food from the dumpster of a grocery store in Murphy, North Carolina. He had managed to elude law enforcement for five years, earning him a spot on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. On April 13, 2005, he pleaded guilty to all four bombings to avoid facing the death penalty. In a written statement, he claimed that he was motivated by a desire to shame the United States government for sanctioning abortion and what he called the homosexual agenda. His actions, however, reveal a complete disregard for who was harmed by his bombs. He targeted civilians, law enforcement officers, and first responders. Years later, he admitted that he had intentionally waited to trigger the bomb at the Birmingham clinic until 35-year-old security guard Robert Sanderson was standing directly over it. On August 22, 2005, serial bomber Eric Robert Rudolph was sentenced to multiple life sentences without the possibility of parole. He was transferred to the ADX Florence Supermax prison in Colorado, where he is incarcerated to this day. Richard Jewell, the security guard who was first lauded as a hero and later vilified in the press, received an official apology from U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno for the FBI's role in his public scapegoating. After his exoneration, he brought libel and defamation lawsuits against many of the networks that had run stories about him. CNN, NBC, and ABC all settled out of court for undisclosed amounts. But most importantly, he was finally respected as the hero he was. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. 
Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Travis Clark. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Andrew Kelleher. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 